Well, from this passage today that we've just read in Colossians 1 and then the beginning of Colossians chapter 2, what we're going to discuss together is we're going to talk about what authentic, God-honoring ministry looks like. We look here in this passage at the Apostle Paul, who was an effective minister for Christ, to say the least, and a faithful minister of Christ. And we're able to look into Paul's own ministry experience, Paul's own ministry example, and actually learn a lot about what it looks like to have an authentic, God-honoring ministry. And as we look into his ministry in this passage, there are five things that I want each one of us to take note of today, which are going to help us to see exactly what an authentic ministry looks like. The title of today's sermon is An Authentic Ministry. Now, in our day, just like in Paul's day, there are many people out there who claim to be doing ministry for Jesus, but honestly, they have a false ministry. And then there are other people who Their ministry isn't a false ministry, it's not heretical, it's not bad, but it could honestly use some tweaking and adjusting to get more in alignment with the vision for ministry that we see in the Bible. And as we talk about these five characteristics, or we can call these these five marks of an authentic ministry, I want you really to be listening to this message in two different ways. First of all, since every single Christian is called into the work of the ministry. Okay, you can see Ephesians 4.12 for that. Every single one of us is called into the work of the ministry because that's true. I'm hoping that we can listen to what, we, what we're reading here in Colossians chapter 1 with an ear that is willing to ask this question. Is what I'm doing, is my personal ministry, Is it in alignment with what we see here in the scriptures, with Paul's ministry? The second way I want to listen to this message today is by asking yourself this question. Are these five things that make up an authentic ministry things that I see in those who are ministering to me? Are these things that I see among my pastors or the deacons in this church or my community community group leader? Or other spiritual leaders in your life? Are these things, are these characteristics, are these marks that you see in their ministry? You see, there are many wonderful, godly, authentic ministers and ministries out there. And we should honor such people. But at the same time, there are also many ministries and ministers who are not keeping in step with the vision that we see in the New Testament, that was embodied in our Lord Jesus himself and in the apostles who came after him. And it's important for us to identify these types of people and to steer clear of them. Now you'll remember at the start of this letter, Paul introduced himself with a title. He introduces himself in verse 1 as an apostle of Christ Jesus. And that makes sense when we consider the background of this letter. The background, as we've talked about, is that there were false teachers in Colossae who were running the risk of luring these Christians away from a simple trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and as their hope. And so Paul is, at the beginning of this letter, announcing that he is an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He's coming right out of the gate saying, listen, I know there are people that are saying certain things, that are trying to teach you certain things that are different than what you received, but you need to understand, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is a certain ministry that's been given to me, an authority that's been given to me, and Paul's going to unpack now in this passage some of what that ministry looks like. Now, next week, we're going to begin to get into some of the specifics of what the heretical teaching in Colossae actually was. But for today's purposes, just note this, that the issue going on in Colossae was not that the false teachers were saying Christianity's wrong or untrue or false and some other religion is true, but rather that they were saying the Christianity that you've received, Christianity as you've learned it, is off base. And we're here to help correct it. We're here to help you get on the right track. Now, Satan is an intelligent enemy because oftentimes he doesn't attack Christians by saying, listen, Christianity is false. This other way of life is true. Now, that that is part of the tactic sometimes, but oftentimes it's not that. Rather, he does exactly what the false teachers in Colossae were doing. He says, well, Christianity is true. It's just the version of Christianity that you're following or the way that you're understanding the Christian faith is wrong. And this other way is right. The Mormon church, of course, claims to be Christian. It's just that they have another testament of Jesus Christ. Further revelation, a fuller understanding of what it means to be a Christian, and to be a follower of Jesus. But of course, they're not keeping in step with the scriptures. Liberal Christianity certainly says that Christianity is true. They would want you to come to their churches and to follow their way. It's just that Christianity is different than what you traditional Christian types think that it is. And so your views on gender or sexuality Or even the scriptures themselves are just outdated and you need to change and modify and adjust your perspectives to fit the times. So as Paul here begins talking about his ministry, he does so in part to instill confidence in the Colossians regarding the gospel that they had received. In 2.4, chapter 2, verse 4, notice he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. That's what's going on here. He wants to make sure that they're not being swept away or deluded or deceived with plausible arguments, with other versions of Christianity. Now, as we get into the text, we see right up front in verse 24, the first feature of an authentic ministry. And it's this, authentic ministry is a joyful sacrifice. Here's what Paul says. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now we just need to stop and acknowledge that that's pretty remarkable that Paul would say that. That he would say that he rejoices in suffering. But that's the way the New Testament writers talk about suffering. James says this in James chapter 1. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 1. Paul says it here. 
that there is a, a, a level of rejoicing that he could take in his sacrifices and in his sufferings. We'll talk about why in a moment. But first, notice that Paul describes his sufferings in a really odd way in verse 24. He writes that in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. So in my body, in my sufferings, Paul says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for the church. Now, Paul is in prison as he's writing this letter. So Paul is physically suffering in very severe ways. Probably malnourished, beaten, chained up, exhausted, dehydrated. He's suffering. He's being physically mistreated for Jesus. But in what way does his suffering for Jesus fill up what is lacking in Christ's sufferings for them? Is Paul suggesting that the suffering of Jesus on the cross where Jesus bore our sin, that that was somehow not quite enough for us? So that Paul, or perhaps other people, would have to add to the sufferings of Jesus in order for it to actually be sufficient. Like Jesus and his work took us to like 80% of acceptability before God, and now Paul has to step in and bring us the other 20%. Well, of course not. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was a once and for all sacrifice. What Jesus did on the cross was complete. Jesus announced from the cross, it is finished. There's nothing more that needs to be added. There's no other suffering or sacrifice that can build on top of this. In fact, if we just go back in this letter to what we looked at last week, in verses 21 and 22, we learn the same thing. Paul wrote there in Colossians 1, 21, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So for Paul, our reconciliation, meaning the, the fixing of our broken relationship with God was achieved right now for them through the death of Jesus so that they could be presented before God as holy, blameless, above reproach, completely righteous. This is what we talked about last week. So if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, then because of Christ's work for you, when you stand before God on judgment day, he doesn't see you in all of your sin. Can I get an amen? He doesn't see you in all of your sin. He sees you rather clothed in, wrapped in, covered in the righteousness of Christ, who knew no sin, who was perfect, who was blameless. That righteousness becomes yours and mine. So certainly Paul is not saying, well, Jesus got us almost there, and now I'm going to help get you the rest of the way there. What Paul possibly means here is that his suffering, which was very real and very severe, as I was just describing, his suffering gives ongoing evidence of the sufferings of Jesus. The death of Jesus on the cross was an unrepeatable event. It happened one time 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. It will never be repeated. But the ongoing, 
and this is such a key here, ongoing joyful suffering of God's servants gives real-time credibility to what we say the cross accomplished. Now, not every minister of Christ will sacrifice in the same ways. Of course, many have been physically persecuted just like Paul. But sacrifice comes in various forms. For example, a different dimension of sacrifice is depicted in verse 29. Look at what Paul writes there. He says in verse 29, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. He uses the word toil there. He uses the word struggling. Paul in verse 29 is describing the intense labor and intense effort that his ministry required. Ministry at times is very hard work. It's a sacrifice of a person's time. It's a sacrifice of a person's resources. It's a sacrifice of a person's physical energy and mental energy. It might be that nighttime phone call that you take because you know that other person's marriage is in crisis. You're going, man, I'm tired or trying to hang out with my own family. And you take the call anyway and you spend an hour on the phone counseling somebody. Take sacrifice. It might be you twice a month opening up your home for a community group. And you've got to work all day just like everybody else. And then you've got to rush home and clean everything and get your kids to stick everything in the closet really quick and slam the doors and get everything prepared and host a group of people coming to your home so that you guys can talk about the Lord and pray together and encourage one another. It could be opening your home to provide a meal for somebody else, just doing hospitality, showing the love of Jesus to other people. And you're cooking and you're hosting and you're showing hospitality. It requires sacrifice. It could be having to spend a lot of time thinking critically about the questions that your teenagers or your emerging adult children have about the faith. Or perhaps a non-believing neighbor or co-worker or classmate at school. And they've got challenging questions and you're like, well, man, I wish you weren't asking me this stuff because I need to go do some reading and some research myself. But you're making that sacrifice. You're doing that research. You're thinking critically about these things. You're trying to provide answers to help other people in their faith journey. Ministry requires sacrifice. Also in verse 1 of chapter 2, we even see the emotional sacrifices in ministry. Paul says, therefore, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, which is a neighboring town, and for all who have not seen me face to face. Paul struggled with concern over the well-being of these Christians that he'd never even seen with his own eyes because he heard that their faith was being tested. It's similar to what he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 28 where Paul says, and apart from other things there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul just being overwhelmed with that stress and that concern about the health and the well-being of other believers. And that would lead him to pray for them. That would lead him to write letters to them. That would lead him to send other believers to go minister and encourage them. Authentic ministry requires sacrifice. But it's a joyful sacrifice. And I don't mean the kind of joy where you plaster a fake smile on your face 24-7. Oh, everything's awesome. Everything's awesome. 
Because life's not always awesome. Life's hard, it's challenging. But the thing is that for those of us who know Jesus and are secure in his love, and for those of us who are aware of what God is doing in the world, there is this underlining joy that just sustains you through every single season, through every single trial, through every single hardship in ministry and just in life. And it's a joy to serve the Lord. And it's a joy to see other people come to know Jesus and to see other people grow in their faith and mature as followers of Jesus. So how about you? Are you willing to sacrifice in order to minister to other people? I mean, do you look at your life right now and say, yeah, there there are things that are being sacrificed. Time, money, physical energy, mental energy, emotional energy, relational energy. Like there is sacrifice being poured out for Jesus. And does that bring you joy? Or is it drudgery? Oh, this is what I have to do. Because the pastor knows. He's going to watch me. He's going to get mad at me. No, it's joyful because, again, we know Jesus and we know who we're serving. The second thing that I want to point out for us is in verse 25. And it's this, that authentic ministry sees itself as a stewardship. In verse 25, Paul says that he became a minister of the church. Note this, he says, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me, for you. Okay, hold on, let's slow down. A stewardship was given to him by God for them. Let's break this down. This is huge. Ministry is a stewardship given to you for others. Well, what is a stewardship? Well, a steward is someone who has been set in charge of something that belongs to another person. So one way to think about it would be, think of a manager in a company. If you leave church today and you go to a restaurant for lunch afterward, and you end up talking to the manager of the restaurant, that person does not own the restaurant. That person has been hired by the owner to run the restaurant on their behalf. So that person is there to carry out the the goals of the company, to carry out the, the vision, and the directives of the owner of that restaurant and make sure things run the way that they, the owner, wants things to be run. They're a steward over something that does not actually belong to them. It belongs to somebody else. In the same way, ministry is God's. He's the one who owns it. And yet, God entrusts ministry to his people. He entrusts ministry to willing servants who want to faithfully steward God's business, so to speak. And this is how Paul understood his ministry. He talks about this in different places. But he never thought of it as his own thing that he kind of manufactured or got started. It was always, hey, God got a hold of me, and God gave me a job to do. It's all about him. This is his ministry, and it's just been given to me. It's been entrusted to me. This is how Paul saw ministry. And this is how all of us have to see all of our ministry, whatever types of ministry we're doing, whatever levels of ministry we're doing. This church, Apostles Church, is not my church. It's not the pastors of this church. It's not our church. This church is God's church. 
To be clear, this church was here long before I ever got here. Marianne, is that true? Long before I, let's say it differently. This church was here long before I was even born. Guy, is that true? I wasn't even born yet and this church was here. And by God's grace, this church will be here long after I'm gone. And the rest of the pastors that are here right now are gone. And so I don't own this. None of us own this. All we're called to do is just steward this faithfully for the time that we're here. And when we're gone, God's going to raise up other people to keep moving forward. Now, what ministry has God called you to? For some of you, you are called to ministry in the local church. You have different roles and responsibilities. You serve in different ways. Guess what? God has entrusted you with those roles. It's his ministry. It's his work. For many of us, we're called to the ministry of family. We have families that we're responsible for. We have children and grandchildren that we're meant to disciple and nurture in their faith. For many of us, it's a business that we run, a job that we do. Those those are forms of ministry that God wants us to steward really, really well. Could be community involvement in different ways. These are all different spheres of ministry that God has entrusted you with. Now, understanding that our ministry is a stewardship is so helpful because guess what? It leads to a couple of things. It leads to humility. Okay, this is God's. This isn't mine. Creates a humility and a dependence on the Lord. It also leads to a commitment to being faithful. We want to be faithful to the Lord. We want to be faithful stewards of what he's given. And it also leads to a real serious diligence. Because we know who the true master is. And we know he's watching everything we do. And we know that someday we're going to give an account for the way that we've handled whatever ministry responsibilities God has given to us. An authentic ministry is one that sees itself as a steward of God's ministry. And in a ministry like that, you'll hear more about what God is doing than what they've accomplished. And finally, notice again that this ministry was given to Paul. He's a steward, but it was given to him for others at the end of verse 25. He says, given to me for you. God doesn't give us ministry for us. To build ourselves up. To make something of ourselves. If it's just about ego. If it's just about something like that. That's not good guys. That's, that's wrong. Those are wrong motives. And it is easy to get this backward. I've heard numerous pastors confess that. They've used their church or looked at their church. In such a way that the church is there to serve them. To help them build a platform. Or give them a, a place for their voice to be heard. Or other motives like that, and they've had to confess those things and repent of that. That's not what ministry is about. When God calls us to all the different types of ministries that he calls us to, he's calling us to those ministries for the good of other people so that we see ourselves as servants of others, that we care about their well-being, that we're not using other people for our own selfish ends. We have been entrusted with ministry for others. Now, the third feature of an authentic ministry that we see here from Paul is this. It's also in verse 25. Authentic ministry is centered on the word. Centered on the word. 
Notice in verse 25, God made Paul the steward over this ministry. Why? To make the word of God fully known, he writes. To make the word of God fully known. All authentic ministry is centered on and based on the Bible. The word of God. If a ministry is not based on the scriptures, it is an inauthentic ministry. Acts 20.27, the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the pastors of the church at Ephesus. He knows he's not going to see them again. And he tells them that he did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He, in fact, says, look, I can wash my hands of any responsibility of all of you guys because guess what? I taught you the scriptures. I shared all of it with you. Every every aspect of God's truth and God's revelation, I, I didn't hold that back. I taught you faithfully the word of God. In 2 Timothy 3, 16, Paul writes this to his young protege, Timothy. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's like, Timothy, don't get this wrong. This, the scriptures, this has come from God. Preach it. Preach the word. Use the word. This is the way that you yourself will be built up. This is the way that all of God's children will be built up. It is through the preaching of the word. At the end of Paul's life, go to Acts chapter 28. He's in house arrest in Rome where he he ends up getting executed. He's beheaded in Rome. And at the end of his life, this is what we read about the Apostle Paul. This is Acts 28, 30, and 31, the final two verses of Acts. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I love that. That final season of his life, what is he devoted to? Same thing he was always devoted to. Teaching God's word day and night to all who would listen to him. This is why we put such an emphasis on the scriptures here at Apostles Church. If if you look at any one of our corporate worship services like today, you'll notice that everything is centered on the Bible. We read the Bible, we pray the Bible, we sing the Bible, we preach the Bible, and by God's grace, we obey the Bible. That's what we're trying to do here. Center everything on the word of God. Now, it's not just the word of God generally that Paul's concerned with. In verse 26, he does zoom in a little bit on the essence of what we should be focused on as we're teaching the Bible. He writes about, in verse 26, a mystery. He writes about the mystery that was hidden in times past but has now been revealed to his saints, been revealed to Christians, to believers, followers of Jesus. 
Simply put, this mystery that Paul is describing is the gospel. The mystery that was revealed is the gospel. The gospel is the good news that God's grace is offered to all people. It's not just for the Jews. It's for the Jews and the Gentiles. It's for the entire world. God's grace is available to all people. And it is offered in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. That's the mystery that Paul's describing. At the end of verse 27, he explains that this mystery is Christ. But he says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. At the point that somebody puts their faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus himself takes up residence in their heart by the Holy Spirit. Literally, we become the temple of the living God. God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives that gives us the hope and the assurance of our own future glory in heaven. So Paul's ministry, we see, was focused on God's word and specifically on the gospel message about what Jesus Christ has done for us. So that in verse 28, he says this, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Friends, we don't preach a philosophy here. We don't preach a moral code here. We don't even preach a religious system here. We preach Christ. That's it. Christ crucified. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 2 too. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So I ask you, is the gospel at the center of your life and at the center of your ministry efforts? You know the expression, all roads lead to Rome, right? The idea in the Roman Empire is that Rome, the capital city, was the center. And every little road worked its way back to that center. That's what the gospel is in ministry and in the Christian life. Every other thing works its way back to the person and the work of Jesus our Savior. Okay, moving on. The fourth feature of an authentic ministry is this. Authentic ministry aims at maturity. It aims at maturity. Paul says in verse 28 that he is trying to present everyone mature in Christ. This is what he was working for. The very next verse, verse 29, he says, For this I toil. For what? To present everyone mature in Christ. He says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works in me. So Paul's saying, look, I'm working toward presenting everyone mature in Christ, and God is working in me to present everyone mature in Christ. If you go back to verse 22 in chapter 1, we see that God's aim for the lives of his children is that we would be presented holy and blameless and above reproach. That's God's agenda. And now Paul is saying, that's also my agenda. I want to work to see every single Christian grow up in practice. Grow up in practice 
into who they already are positionally like we talked about before. If you're in Christ by faith, then God sees you as holy, blameless, and above reproach. But the work of ministry is to help bridge that gap between who we are today in practice, because we're not perfectly holy, we're not perfectly blameless, but to bridge that gap of who our identity really is, or what our identity really is, and who we actually are. This is what Paul's working at. He's toiling with all of his energy to see everyone mature in Christ. Paul was not focused on building his platform. Paul was not focused on having biographies written about his incredible missionary strategies and church planning efforts. Paul was not focused on having best-selling books, although his 13 letters have done pretty well for themselves. But none of that was his focus. His aim, the thing that he was aiming at was, I want to see every single person I meet fully mature in Christ. I want to see them grow up into Christ-likeness. And I love that he focused on everyone being mature in Christ. Notice that everyone is used three times in that passage. Verses 28, or verse 28. This is the goal for everyone in the church. We, Apostles family, listen, we are not content with anyone here staying in neutral. And we're definitely not happy if you go in reverse. But we're not content with you being a neutral. Paul's aim was that every single person, every single believer would be matured in their relationship with Christ. We are all here growing together. We go together, we grow together. No stragglers. We like to say at Apostles that we're not focused on building a big church. We're focused on building big people. Investing in people. Seeing people grow in their love for Jesus. Grow in their devotion to Jesus. Grow in living like Jesus for the glory of God. That's the focus. And if God, through that focus, adds to this church as he's done and continues to grow this church, so be it. We would not resist that. But that's not the focus. It's not just how, how big can we make this church. It's about seeing every single person who comes to faith. Growing and maturing in their walk with the Lord. Unfortunately for some people, the focus is a massive ministry and not a mature ministry. Kind of the, you know, mile wide but an inch deep philosophy. That was not Paul's heart. Paul wanted to reach the nations. He was a missionary. He was a church planner. His heart was to reach as many people as possible. But not just to say, will you make a profession of faith? Will you say that you follow Jesus and then move on? It was to see people truly come to know Jesus. To get baptized in obedience to Jesus. And then begin to move forward for the rest of their life. Growing and maturing and becoming more and more like Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 2 through 4, show us a further description of the maturity that Paul's aiming at. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. So Paul's saying, look, I'm struggling. I'm working for you all to be united. Right? He says, being knit together in love. Unity in the church is a big concern for Paul. You can look at the book of Ephesians to see more of that. So unity matters. That we're unified, that we love one another, that we're demonstrating Christ-like love to one another. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out that this unity, though, in the Greek here, is not just referring to love, it's also referring to the next thing that he talks about there. Again, this mystery of Christ. So it's also referring to belief or doctrine or teaching. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, while the process of knitting together the church into a united body clearly includes the growth of love, it also includes the growth on the part of the whole community of a proper understanding of the gospel. So there's a unity in our understanding of the gospel, of what God has done and is doing for us in Christ. And that understanding of the gospel produces love for one another. So Paul wants them knit together in love and truth. Exploring together the depths of the gospel, he says, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Here we see that being gospel-centered does not mean being redundant or shallow. When we talk about being gospel-centered as a church, that does not mean that we just say the same thing every week. It does not mean that we're surfacy. It does not mean that all we do every week to preach the gospel is just say, hey, God created you and loves you. You sinned against him, but he sent Jesus to die and rise for your sins, so believe in him and you can have eternal life. We don't just repeat that 20-second statement every week and say, well, now we're talking about the gospel here. Now we're a gospel-centered church. Paul says that in Christ, what we have is an inexhaustible treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge to explore. It's sort of like if, if you were a deep-sea diver and you discovered the lost city of Atlantis. And it blew your mind and you're like, oh my gosh, there's all of this stuff down here and there's all these different buildings and, and you spent the rest of your life going back and diving and exploring more and more. And somebody looked at you and said, well, haven't you been there once? Why do you keep going back? Well, I keep going back because every time I go, I'm unearthing more boxes of treasure that were lost in the lost city of Atlantis. We spend our entire lives as Christians diving in and exploring the person and the work of Jesus Christ and we'll never ever exhaust all of the treasures and the riches that we find there. As the Chalcedonian Creed states of our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. How then can we ever exhaust all of who Jesus is or what he has done for us? In the person of Jesus, we're taken into the mysteries both of the Godhead and into the complexities of humanity. Okay, the fifth and final thing that we want to look at here for an authentic ministry is in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Authentic ministry celebrates spiritual progress. Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Obviously, these Christians are not out of the woods yet. Paul is very concerned about the real danger of the false teachers persuading them or deluding them with plausible arguments. Back in verse 2, he struggles for them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery. So they're not out of the woods yet, and yet, he says this in verse 5, that he rejoices to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. I love that, because if we're going to do ministry in the ways of Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, We become the type of people who don't just fixate on people's struggles and people's failures and the challenges that people are encountering in their faith. We're the type of people who are very quick to celebrate and to highlight the spiritual progress and the fruit that we see in other people. An authentic ministry rejoices over people having their faith firmly rooted in Jesus. Some people get so frustrated that there are other Christians who don't see every single secondary or tertiary doctrinal issue the exact same way they do. Some people get extremely frustrated that it's taking other believers a lot longer to grow in godliness and to mature and to bear spiritual fruit the way that they do. Usually there's a contrast that goes on with people like that. But they just get frustrated by that. Like, like, why are you not here yet? How, how come you haven't gotten to this level yet? And obviously there is a place for discontentment because we do want to see everybody maturing. We want to see everybody growing just like Paul does. But family, at the end of the day, we can celebrate any and every person who has heard the true gospel and is resting all of their hope and all of their faith and all of their trust on Jesus Christ. We can celebrate over that. No matter what other things they might get wrong theologically, because all of us are getting something wrong theologically, no matter what shortcomings they might have in their Christian living, we can celebrate and rejoice that their faith is firmly rooted in Christ alone. Well, today we've gotten a look at an authentic ministry, if there ever was one, Because we've looked at Paul's ministry to the Colossians. It was a stewardship that was given to him by God for the sake of the church. And therefore, Paul joyfully sacrificed for their good. But really, Paul was only following in the footsteps of his master. Because don't we read in the book of Hebrews that our Savior Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus joyfully sacrificed his life on the cross, not for his own good, but for your good, for my good. Because he loved us. And he knew that through his death, he could bring forgiveness for your sins and he could reconcile your broken relationship with your Father in heaven. And so the love of Jesus becomes both the motive and the model of our own ministry efforts. As we close, I want to go back to where we began. My prayer is that as you've listened to this message, you've tested your own heart in ministry, 
and that you'll strive to make changes wherever that might be necessary. Also, I hope that through this message, you've been able to carefully consider the spiritual leaders in your life and at this church. And if you've noticed any shortcomings, please let Justin know where he's falling short. (laughs) If you know Justin, you know that's totally a joke. Me and Ryan are the real problems around here. But in in all honesty, I hope that you do feel an increased level of confidence in the shepherds and leaders of this church. I really hope that. And I also hope you have a better understanding of why we do a lot of the things the way that we do them here. But with that being said, none of us have arrived. None of us ever will. All of us together as a family of God need to push each other on, encourage each other to become more like Jesus and to live and minister the way that he did. And so I want to close by praying together for each of us as a local church that we would, in fact, embody ministry the way that Jesus and Paul here in Colossians 1 did. Let's pray together.